Coming to you live and direct from the Vibe Junkie Studios in Oakland, California. And this is episode 18. I'm 18. Indeed. on that Alice Cooper and uh, with each episode I just uh, more and more empowered to do this show people keep hitting me up letting me know that uh, I'm reaching them in a profound way or an interesting way or an invigorating fashion or I just help them pass the time informing them about something they had or now have an interest in and that's, uh, that's some fulfilling shit so, uh, yeah, episode 18, uh, trucking along, little by little, baby steps, doing the damn thing. I got cliches for days. Anyway, you know how we do around here, kicking things off with a deep bow and thank you to some movers and shakers in one way or another. And, you know, less than 48 hours after Jam Base 20, the 20th uh, anniversary party. Uh, out here in uh, Sweetwater with Bob Weir's spot in Mill Valley just outside of San Francisco and uh, you know there's a lot of history there and um, I could tell quite a bit of it but the the short version is that they had the 20th anniversary party at Sweetwater where uh, the classic lineup of Jacob Fred Jazz Odyssey reunited for their first set in a very long time and The Slip also reunited and played as The Slip for the first time in some time. And those kind of bookended a day filled with music and friends and family uh, from the Jam Bass arc. Uh, and now Jam Bass really is the reason why you're hearing me on this podcast. The reason why I have chosen this route 
in life. Um, you know, I was at college in 99 in Vermont, just sort of poking around the internet for the first time. And I was seeing a lot of fish and needed to take uh, what I was feeling about the shows and verbalize that and share it. And I started posting some reviews on fish.net, just elementary stuff. And from that, um, Jambase uh, sent a couple little show reviews of different things in Burlington out to the Jambase email and uh, heard back from uh, Deanne Herman and uh, Super D, as she was known, and in some circles still is. And that email correspondence uh, turned into a real life, uh, you know, editor, writer, in its very primitive sense, that kind of relationship. I met her at my first Jazz Fest in 2000, and the rest is history. Uh, for many years, Jambase uh, was the preeminent news source and hub for the jam world. And uh, as they got more and more into it, they spread their wings further and further outside of the jam idiom spectrum all the while being a, an authority for the jam thing too and you know I was writing about the roots on jam base in 2002 um, and then once uh, Aaron Case and, and Dennis Cook you know during their steering of the ship uh, really there was no holds barred and they would touch anything that had merit and uh, they were fearless in doing so and Jambase gets pigeonholed a lot uh, for being just uh, the, the jam band community, and, and that is the heartbeat. Um, going back to when the founder Andy Gadiel and co-founder Teddy Kartzman and Deanne gave birth to Jambase all those years ago, it was for the jam world, but it uh, had such a bigger scope um, once other folks like Dennis and Aaron Case <coughs> And even Jeffrey Dupuy in New Orleans. And I, you know, too many to name. Jake Krolick in Philadelphia. Uh, Tom Speed down south. I mean, there were these correspondents all over the country. And this is before social media where you just knew someone everywhere. So we just all filed these reports from the road, if you will. And it was uh, the sort of uh, wild, wild west of the internet because... Nobody really knew anything yet. Print journalism wasn't exactly dead. Magazines weren't all the way into the internet thing. And newspapers were fighting tooth and nail to hold on to, you know, that draconian institution. And, you know, it was a real thrill, honor, privilege to be among the first to really, you know, kick down the door. And, you know, I by no means was a trailblazer. I just followed the lead blocking of of the, you know, Jesse Jarnos and Benji Eisens of the world. And, uh, always looking up to the guys like David Fricky and whatnot. But the real heroes were the Dennis Cooks and the Jesse Jarnos and the Benji Eisens of the world. And, and, and just following in behind them and, and just kind of spewing out my harebrained thoughts of, you know, by the time 2007 rolled around, I was writing about Jay-Z on Jambase. Uh, with the full green light, you know, 
and it was a it was a thrilling ride, and I and I was lucky to be a part of it, and and that's what we were celebrating the other day is, is the the amazing uh, sort of story arc of Jam Bass, and uh, everything that sort of spiraled out of it, and and with that came the soundtrack, so. That's my history with Jam Bass, and, and I just wanted to say thank you to Andy Gadiel and Teddy Kartsman, Deanne Herman, Aaron Case, Dennis Cook, and the rest of the Jam Bass diaspora for, you know, the, the lead blocking, as I said, and, and also opening up the portal so that I could, all these years, all these dreams, just uh, kind of live out this fantasy of being like the almost famous dude Cameron Crowe style uh, you know it's when I was sending away those reviews back in 99-2000 from Vermont you know I had no idea where it would take me but Jam Bass is what made it possible and even today although I don't contribute any longer um, I have a tremendous amount of admiration and respect for Scotty Bernstein Scotty B, who we saw, it was one of the first people to welcome me to the party the other day, and, and said some really touching shit to me as I walked through, and uh, and he's like, you know, steering the ship admirably and stoically, and kind of back into the jam band idiom, and that's cool, and then they're doing their thing, so, you know, I may uh, work for some other folks these days, but I'm, I'm part of the jam bass family forever, I wave the flag forever. And I wanted to take a solid 10 minutes here and just offer a deep bow from the Up Full Life podcast. There would be no Up Full Life podcast or Up Full Life period were it not for these cats at Jam Bass and, and what they, you know, the curtain that they pulled back or the door that they kicked down or the trail that they blazed, you know. Like I said, cliches for days, but you get my drift. So, uh, with that, um, We'll say thank you, jambase.com. Go see live music. player wondering if you're still listening to Up For Life podcast. You are. And yes, that is Sublime. And the reason the, that I'm playing Sublime on my show is we have one of the most influential people in their short-lived, uber-successful career as the featured guest for episode 18 of the Up For Life podcast. And that dude is John Phillips of Silverback Music Group. Uh, somebody that I have a 
great personal and budding professional relationship with, but at the time of this interview, we were just kind of talking about that, and uh, we happened to both be in New Orleans for Jazz Fest, and John Phillips is somebody uh, that I can say has an even longer and deeper rooted uh, personal history and affinity for Jazz Fest and New Orleans as than I do, um, and we discussed that at length, uh, this interview that took place during Jazz Fest, uh, John is a busy guy. He's down there primarily in a professional capacity. He's got lots of artists like his main cats, Dumpster Funk and George Porter. And all those guys are so busy during Jazz Fest, not to mention, you know, he had other band business going on while he was down there. So it, it took a lot for him to move some mountains to get me an hour. And uh, I was grateful that he did. Um, grateful indeed because we talked a lot of GD. Um, John is an old, old school deadhead who... Uh, put in a lot of years on the road with the boys and uh we talk about that a little bit and the connection between you know new orleans and the grateful dead and the roots of that with the neville brothers so that was kind of our jumping off point and then uh, i wanted to get right into sublime Uh, it's no secret sublime is not really in my wheelhouse um, but i got a lot of admiration and respect for what they built in a short time and naturally um, a lot of empathy for uh, brad's untimely demise and left a family behind etc so uh always been interested in the story if somewhat less interested in the music um, until i had this conversation with john where he really took us back to the front lines of uh what that experience was like discovering uh sublime and then sort of being their manager slash bro that you know ushered them into the music business uh when no one else would believe in them and it's a pretty amazing story that has a harrowing and tragic ending. And uh, he doesn't shy away from that either. Talk a little bit about, you know, Brad's issues uh, with heroin and uh, the p- constant battle that that was for him and the band and how that unfortunately ended. Um, so it was a big part of my having him on the show was wanting to just discuss that because, uh, you know, we haven't really moved... Uh, in the right direction with the opiate epidemic in the 23 years since uh, Bradley was taken. So um, that was really uh, something I wanted to touch on with John, and, and I knew he was interested in speaking to me. So that's where we went first after uh, the sort of New Orleans history and the Grateful Dead stuff, and then we shift into some George Porter, who's you know an iconic musician and not just in new orleans but all over the country and really the globe so we talk a little bit about george's legendary uh presence if you will and and his prolific activity not just during jazz fest but all the time then we get into uh john's main band or client these days uh slightly stupid who he also believed in when no one else did and has uh, you know shepherded them and their meteoric rise to success and uh, we talk a bit about how that happened and a little bit of insider stuff with slightly stupid and uh, of course we couldn't uh, be in new orleans and not talk about his other client dumpster funk and ivan neville ian neville and and the you know trajectory of their musical journey and the roots in New Orleans and so forth. Um, and I actually haven't listened back to the interview since we first did it, um, but I, I'm pretty sure that's what we covered. And uh, I may be mistaken. There might be some more, but that'll just be a surprise for listeners. But, uh, you know, a little bit about John's own path, how he got into the music business, 
I had to finish up with some Grouch and Eli, who are uh, hip-hop artists out here on the West Coast that are like underground legends and been around for two decades. And believe it or not, Silverback and John uh, have the Grouch and Eli in their incredible stable as well. So uh, I hope that you have enjoyed the sublime Don't Push Garden Grove Right Back seg from uh, October 2195. Uh And without any further ado, please enjoy a deep dive with my man John Phillips from Silverback Music. And then we'll be back with a little more on episode 18 of the Upful Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz. And we're sitting here live in the Bywater uh, neighborhood in New Orleans, Louisiana, right smack in the middle of the days between of Jazz Fest. This is the Upful Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and I'm here with John Phillips of Silverback Management. So I want to welcome John to the show. What's up? What's up, B? Yeah, up man. Upful Life. Yeah. Right on, up man. Upful really... Life. We're in the Bywater. Ivan Neville told me when he came over and visited, he goes, the Bywater? He's like, this thing, what's the Bywater? He's like, this is, a, this is the Upper Ninth Ward. Right. It's the 13th board, so... Okay. But well, that's a good piece know. of history that yeah. people well, need to know. Yeah. This is five blocks from the river, so it wasn't it wasn't flooded right here. Okay. Fortunately, so... Right on. But... Yeah, I've been seeing you down here at Jazz Fest for, for a long time, and everyone has their own kind of connection to the city and when they come here, so maybe just to start off, tell the people how you started coming down to New Orleans and, and your own history with Jazz Fest. Well... I'm pretty much a Cali kid. I mean, I was born in New York, but I moved to the Bay Area when I was six years old and <clears throat> was influenced early by Grateful Dead and, you know, Bay Area music like that. Uh, and, of course, they had the influence of the Neville Brothers, who were open sure. for them quite a bit in the 80s, the first shows I started going to. Um, that piqued my curiosity into New Orleans. Um as did an affinity, early affinity for the radiators, which just happened for me off of hearing them on FM radio in the Bay Area. Dr. Doctor was a hit, and I kind of liked that tune and started exploring further. But uh, what happened, I first got down here in 91. I just started going to college at UCLA, and a couple of friends of mine that were going to college at uh, UC Santa Cruz, they're from Florida, and they knew I liked a lot of different kind of music, and they were like, you you ever been in New Orleans? You got to come check out the Mardi Gras, and they had been coming here quite a while, and they weren't really the kind of guys that were doing the Bourbon Street, you know, frat boy hang. They were right. music, you know, heads, and, and uh, had grown up coming to Mardi Gras from Florida. It's like a tradition, and, and uh, so they said, come out, come meet us out in uh, in New Orleans and we'll, we'll show you the, the ropes and um, thankfully I did and uh, I mean I've been hooked ever since in the city just fell in love with you know the vibe and the feel and that kind of quality about New Orleans that just you, you you can't manufacture it just has that you know spirit to it yeah and so uh, you know, coming down here that first trip made a big, profound influence on me, and I was just like, I felt something here. And uh, so I've been coming back pretty consistently since 90, 92, I think, was it was actually Feb of 92 that I came here for Mardi Gras the first time. Saw Dr. John at the Riverwalk, free show, Night Tripper show. Wow. Saw the Nevilles at Tips, uh, saw the Rads. 
Um, even saw some punk rock. That that girl punk band L Seven was playing some little shithole yeah. place. We went and checked that out and pretend we're dead. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and then uh, yeah, I mean, I at that time I was uh, I was I guess in college, so I wasn't yet in the music business. So I came down here as as a fan and just to absorb things, and we were experimenting. Yeah. You know, if if you know what I mean, sure, in terms sure. of mind expansion and that was pretty yeah. that was pretty cool and trippy in new orleans i bet yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's a whole different because i live in the bay now i'm not from the bay i'm also originally east coaster but there's a whole like you know psychedelic history and culture in the bay yeah and this you know that celebrated in the whole like hippie dream but yeah. there's an even deeper and maybe even more spiritual psychedelic culture here in new orleans and you're not the first person. Billy Ayuso uh, interviewed earlier today, and a couple other people mentioned it since I've been here. And it's a real uh, interesting thing you brought up, which is the parallel of, of the Neville Brothers' Grateful Dead connection and how many people from the Grateful Dead universe, fans and musicians, um, sort of, you know, portal into this world down here. And now what we share together with our community here is, is like a, a grandchild of that marriage so busted on bourbon street right yeah. right yeah so. but it, it's amazing just like to think that 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 that's alive and well in the spirit here yeah i mean it has been a long time for sure and uh you know some history there obviously and and uh a lot of musical influence you know so right. it's like I, the first I remember reading you know that jerry garcia was influenced by the meters like early when i first started you know listening to that music it was like meters i better check them out you know what i mean like and jerry's listening you know right. and uh that was kind of my first exposure to to funk music really right on you know p-funk and the meters yeah 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 so but you're you're uh in socal as, as at this time in your life going to ucla um what was like the vibrant music scene that you were a part of down there in that early mid 90s era um well I was booking shows on campus, like when I started. That was kind of my okay. first music business endeavor. Was just as a student booking college campus shows. Um, my first booking I ever booked a, as a show was uh, Mike Watt and Firehose. Sure. Yeah, yeah. and uh, they're a big Southern California influence. I mean, they were the Minutemen. Right. And uh, he's like, like an underground legend. I like him, Mike Watt. He's the punk rock George Porter. You right. know, and he's a guy that's been in his van playing 50 straight shows and doing what he called Econo Core, you know, and it's just, he's still doing it. And he's had these, like, you know, uh, similar kind of renaissances in a way over time, like just almost died, got healthier, keep, just keeps playing and playing and plays it raw. And uh, so Mike Watt and Firo's, like, they're from San Pedro, California, and the Minutemen, and they were highly influential post-punk group. And right. the very first sample on a record that I was affiliated with, Sublime's 40 Ounces to Freedom, <clears throat> which sampled uh, the Minutemen's uh, D. Boone from the Minutemen goes, Punk Rock Saved Our Lives. That's the first sample on 40 Ounces to Freedom. The album opens up like that. And um, I got into Sublime in, in 93, I started working for a record label, and one of the other cats that was young like me at the label was just, we were sharing music and, you know, sharing good sense million. and, like, right. um, <laughs> he just checked this tape out, 40 Ounces to Freedom, and he gave me the, the 
first cassette of Sublime, and that was like made on a four track or something, right? It's like super do it yourself. It, it's very yeah. Actually, Forty Ounces to Freedom was made at Cal State Dominguez Hills uh, as a recording project for okay. the founder of Skunk Records, Miguel Happel. He became a kind of honorary fourth member of Sublime. He recorded the the first record and kind of got them in the studio first and did live sound for them and. Um, he recorded 40 ounces to freedom as his like college uh music project oh right recording school did something before there was some other tapes that were like you can find if you could find them i mean but there was jaw won't pay the bills that was an earlier one too so 93 you get into uh the sublime sort of culture yeah and And that was the first thing that hit me actually like as hard as the grateful dead you know because it was a band that actually was combining all these influences that i like they had you know a descendant song but they also had scarlet begonias from the dead and they had bob marley's trenchtown rock and uh they had a lot of reggae music and samples like the Beastie Boys and, you know, a fusion of all these different sounds that nobody had really done before. And just from a kind of subculturally speaking, like they covered all this ground that was like all the music that we had listened to coming up. And then Bradley kind of like put it all together in a package that, you know, sounded like nothing else, but had all those elements. So it really, you know, it captivated me. And uh, I just became really passionate about, you know, Brad and Sublime's music around right. 93. And by 1994, uh, I gotten friendly with the band and was going to, you know, their underground shows down in Huntington Beach and Long Beach. And there was like a definite underground scene. Right. And you, you didn't get that in Hollywood. There's big separation between being in L.A. or being in a, you know, Southern California beach city. And right. Sublime was playing for like 300 to 500 kids at these underground you know, music venues, and it was a real deal, you know, and it was punk rock, DIY, uh, it was, it was real, it was a, you know, it was party music for these people, but it was, it was, you know, steeped in a subculture that was very distinctively Long Beach, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, that was, that was kind of the next phase and I started going to the shows and I had transitioned from graduating in uh, 93 into starting to work for a record label called Gasoline Alley Music Mm -hmm. and they were affiliated with MCA Universal Records and so I as a young A&R you know talent rep at Gasoline Alley I brought them Sublime I was listening to this music that that my friend Greg Abramson gave me and um, this is a band that you know I want to want to sign and try to help them achieve greater success yeah i thought that they really had the ingredients to shine a light and you know make a big big impact in the music world i mean and you know this is a good bet you know but unfortunately you know you didn't really see the fruition until it was a little too late i know it's tough to talk about well i mean it's one of those bittersweet things you know like ultimately the music is the triumph and not found the light of day and we all right. get that gift you know mm-hmm. brad didn't stick around but when i first brought the band to the label i was very honest uh with the the brass the guys that you know have to cut the check i was like i'm gonna tell you i'll bet the farm on this music it's like the next nirvana because right. cobain had already had the success and he got to tour under it and you know play for thousands tens of thousands of people right. in your around the world so Biden was still just a little like yeah, garage thing. band getting into the theater, getting to the next level, uh, but never got to t- 
carnage, you know, never got to re- relish in the success that they had once they became, you know, pop culture. But I represented from the get go once I found out that Brad was, you know, using hard drugs that I said, I bet the farm, the music, this would be the next Nirvana. You know, the scene coming from Long Beach right. and Southern Cal, it had sublime and no doubt i mean music's regional right like seattle grunge was happening that was the big 90s explosion 90 to 94 or 5 and then the next thing is california and i said hey sublime brad noel that's the guy you know and uh and i mean you were right there ahead of their time you know literally and and i guess um what i wanted to kind of ask is like was there an incubation period where they were like you all knew in SoCal like one of these days this shit's going to happen, or was it like uh, that he would die, or that the music was the music like, that he would become not he but honestly that for me would be like a really huge yeah. you know for me global. was for me was both. I mean, you know, yeah. I definitely thought that both potentially both things could happen. You know, right. hopefully not the latter. Right. And thankfully for us, the latter didn't happen until after he made and crafted the self-titled record in 96. But um, yeah, I mean, I had ultimate confidence that that music was going to penetrate and become classic. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of other people didn't necessarily. I mean, it was a hard sell the music business because their early recordings were low fidelity, like you said. And Robin the Hood, you listen to that record, and you got Raleigh Theodore Saker's soliloquies, which is just a crazy guy in a halfway house spouting out like William S. Burroughs kind of stream of consciousness, you know, ad lib like craziness and profanity. And nobody wanted to necessarily hearing that and then hearing little songs interspliced between it was like it, people had a hard time digesting it that were the suits, you know what I mean? Yeah, I was going to say the suits. Suits didn't really. And you go in as an A and R, and you have to present this and, and convince them. Yeah. Right? Well, I was such a pain in the ass that you know eventually they just I think were like just give this kid give this kid <laughs> give this kid his chance he's bugging right. me you know. Um, but if you really looked at it, I mean they were they were starting to cultivate a pretty large underground audience, yeah. and that was something where like you knew if it was hitting people like that, it could you know permeate into other areas and uh so yeah they gave me a shot what's that i was like it was wildfire once they did get behind it and and the train started rolling yeah i mean well finally like after i started working with them they had the two independent records 40 ounces of freedom and robin the hood and somebody at k-rock radio in la the big fm powerhouse station alternative station decided to drop the song date rape in 1995 on the air and was that just like a album cut or was that a single it was a cut that people liked the that liked the band like it was one of their more humorous kind of little slice of life cuts it wasn't the more serious side of the band but that was definitely part of their you know their dna and makeup like there was humor there was intellect there was you know there's a bit of everything voodoo you know but Date Rape got on radio because it kind of had the novelty thing, and, and the guy who put it on, I mean, he was right. That song hit the airwaves, and mind you, it was 95. They had recorded and released that song in 92 on their own. So it took three Yeah, so it took three years for it to get to, say, the commercial mm-hmm. level, and they dropped it on the radio, and I don't think K-Rock ever had a bigger hit than that. You know, wow. that's definitely one of the top five hits ever in, in, you know, on K-Rock. 
Did and they ever play like the Weenie Roast or anything? Did yeah, the funny thing is at that point, once they got popular from that song in K-Rock, they got asked to play the Weenie Roast, and right. the rumor had it that Sublime wasn't playing that song at their shows because they were getting sick of it. Right. And uh, K-Rock made me, the program director, made me sign a waiver that they were if they got to. that they had to play it. So wow. I told Bradley, I'm like, dude, you can't, you can't yeah. fuck this up and put me, you know, in hot water at the station. It's going to ultimately affect your career, you know. And uh, he kind of kept me hanging in suspense until they busted it at that thing. But they did. And they also, that same afternoon, they played a song, Saw Red, and Gwen Stefani from No Doubt came out and joined them. And there's some video footage of that on YouTube. It was historical times, yeah. you know. It was 1995, and those bands were starting oh, to... Yeah. And, yeah. Know, I got to, to live, thankfully, in, in that time period, you know. Yeah, that's amazing. The last of the golden era of, like hard CD sales and yeah. actually people were buying right there was you know it was a different time for sure yeah. technology hadn't taken over yet it's yeah. still an old fashioned you know kind of way of doing it and Sublime toured like I mean they they had that mentality you know record your own music do it yourself tour was he was know. he able to tour I mean being that he was sick and, and struggling with, were they able to get out definitely was a or? concern like the first trip I ever took to with them was to New York for CMJ. It's a convention yeah, that younger bands go channel, to, right. and they we had set up because now they're on a label, and that's what you're setting up shows and trying to get them out there in the industry. And so we all flew out to New York to play a few shows, and I actually just remember like Brad like eagerly awaiting his bag to come off the baggage claim because like make sure shit's there, you know. Right. And that was kind of the first indication for me, like, like this might be a problem travel-wise, you sure. know? Like, what if he can't get his dope there? Yeah. Then he's, you know, and I was not experienced with anything like that before. I was just, was, we were guinea pigs. I was 24 years old, you know, 25 years old when I met the band. So first time having, like, experience dealing with addiction in an addict, you know, that happened to be one of the greatest music you know brainchilds ever in my opinion and i did try to help him he got busted early on too so the label was like we want him to travel if they're gonna make it they're gonna have to go overseas they're gonna so there was a the label actually did put up money for a drug uh rehabilitation program and drug Mm -hmm. diversion to keep him out of court because he got busted actually and had a possession charge and so to get him off he had Mm -hmm. to go do this program and i was flying on an airplane with him to the bay area quite frequently to have him go to see this uh this counselor and he was trying to wean off and you know i was gonna ask you see he did make some good faith efforts from time to time yeah he detoxed a few times and uh i read an interview with his widow where she talked about that some of those times in his life was pretty excruciating yeah i mean it was good when he made it over the hump and was clairvoyant and just you know he was just you got to see a side of him that was really the true essence of, yeah. of his being, you know, and I wish I got a lot more times with him like that because he was just a super brilliant individual. I yeah. mean, you know, he is like a history book, just super intelligent with a worldview. And yeah. unfortunately, I mean, they get so written off as kind of just a punk rock party band and things like that. But I have to say that Bradley was, you know, an intellectual that had like very deep kind of thoughts and world vision yeah yeah interesting reflected in his music and that's why it touches so many people's an honesty there but also like that thing that struggle demon yeah Yeah, i mean there's a a bit of a recovery element to my podcast we've talked a lot about this on some other episodes not so much bradley but just how you know addiction works and, and hurts people you know and everyday people and that guy like the way you talk about 
Bradley so like eloquently and with such reverence. It's beautiful to hear, and it's just like, tragic to know that you know, all these years later, you know, we're talking about it and what could have been. That guy to me is Shannon Hoon from Blind Melon, who died here in New Orleans outside yeah. Tipitinas, and uh, you know those guys were like 15 months from one another, and you know, yeah. it was it's just hard to imagine what might have been. And uh, I just wanted to, you know, kind of honor, so that they didn't die in vain, like just kind of honor like the brilliance of Bradley Noel and, yeah. and the effect that he continues to have on well, people. The music, the music lives on, you yeah. know, thankfully. And uh, yeah, Bradley would have been 50 last year. Wow. So I wrote a letter to him on Facebook that I posted up. It was like just kind of talking to him from mm-hmm. down here and being like perspective on one, I mean, how much time has gone by, but also how deeply affected his music affected people yeah. and, and hit because he never got to see it see the light of day right. you I know mean, Santeria blew after he had passed yeah what I got Santeria that whole self-titled it. record right. it spawned four major hits and you know the catalog sold 15 it million to a generation for record. sure and uh just uh you know he he recorded that record and heard it and he called me up once he got back he detoxed again from making the record in texas he was recording it at willie nelson's ranch with paul leary from the butthole surfers and paul called me and said like we got to get brad home he's gonna die here he's like you know he was surfers were no fucking angels (laughs) oh there's yeah Dude, incidentally, uh, incidentally, I heard Sonny did before. I've actually former world champion surfer. Yeah, I mean, and the guy is just—I mean, if you think about, yeah, there's definitely an edge there, yeah. you know. So that's 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 something. There's a there's a parallel. I mean, anyone at a level of that, you know, talent. You know, there's there's I've usually seen some kind of a, a conflict too, yeah. you know, and uh, that's sometimes what drives it, you know. Yeah, man. Well, dude, I appreciate you going down that road with Bradley and yeah. just talking about that era of your life. And yeah, I kind of want to just kind of respectfully move on to some of the more current things that are uh, positive things you've got going on. Um, you know, what was your like move after, uh, you know, you lived through the, the nightmare of Bradley dying and then Sublime gets big? Yeah. And, um, what was the next band that, you know, you really... Well, I started on the cusp of that and the record label... Uh, dissipated and whatnot that's when i started my own company silverback okay. music in 1998 Last year, 21 years in yeah okay. yeah and uh <clears throat> yeah what a long strange trip it's been <laughs> <laughs> um but i started the management company so i want to help artists like i my my passion was kind of more on the artist side and then the suit side on the label side you you know it's a, you don't always have the same agenda so i felt like from my experiences i could help the artist and navigate the you know treacherous treacherous course of the music business and uh <clears throat> which it is and i actually just started to help the younger band well long beach dub came out of sublime and then bradley and he had introduced me to slightly stupid when they were 16 year old kids he was helping them out kind of teaching them a little licks and about reggae and about recording and they recorded the first record of slightly stupid together in sublime's little makeshift studio which i got to see you know that take place and miles and kyle from slightly (coughs) stupid they were just 16 year old kids you know playing little punk rock songs and and but they had a chemistry with each other and they had some real talent underneath and brad recognized that really early and symbolically you know he introduced me he's like this is miles from slightly stupid and 
I always kind of took it like he was passing me the torch. Like, if you want this music to really continue and go on, like, this is Miles. He could take it down the road for you. And and they did. Slightly wow. stupid, you know, they they we started to help them in 1998 when we started Silverback. And they were putting out independent records on Skunk, and which was Sublime's label. And... They just took the, you know, the lessons and the get get in the van, you know, because right. you got to get out there and tour and play for people. So those dudes, like, and they worked their asses off for, you know, 10 years yeah. to get to the level of, hey, we're like, now we're playing some real venues right. and whatnot. And they had the endorsement of Sublime, but they never got to go and tour with Sublime. There was no tour, right. you know, so they did it on their own. And, and uh, so, you know, Silverback kind of started with that and then... We signed Fishbone, which is, you know, a legendary, yeah, influential, yeah. like, they're the band that influenced like Sublime, no doubt, but Chili's. also Chili Peppers and Primus and, yeah. you know, you name it, like... They're incredible. Yep, so um, had the privilege of starting to work with them in 2005 and... What was that? The, oh, that wasn't back in the reality of my surroundings era. Uh, no, this was past... That was... That was 90s, a, no, that yeah, was that was nineties. I was a fan then, yeah. but they had gone through every manager in the music business. Their train was falling off the tracks, and I met Norwood. And uh, I mean, Fishbone's a reason why actually David Kahn produced some of Sublime's record because he produced Truth and Soul for Fishbone, and okay. that's like a seminal record for mm -hmm. them. And when I heard that, I was like, we should get that guy to do some work. And I call I called Norwood up. I said, Well, I ran into him at the Viper Room, I think. I said, Norwood, I just like signed this band Sublime and I wanna potentially have David Kahn produce some tracks and what happened is Fishbone had rumored to punch David Kahn out in the recording <laughs> studio, which did happen. Wow. Uh, but he just said that, you know, there's a lot of volatility and Fish, the drummer, Norwood's brother, yeah, he's punched. Such a badass. Yeah, and they, I don't know, you know, that was just they, uh, they were punk rock too. So right. that did happen, but he said, you know, confirm we made our best music with him and then david cut four hits with sublime pretty much so right. um and then worked with stupid nah you oh. know after that he actually worked with sugar ray and made okay. uh that the fly and then oh wow i, I kind of didn't want to work with him after yeah, that understand. but uh now he took the formula and applied it to yeah. you know made another big hit but stupid took a more grassroots approach they didn't really want anybody necessarily like touching their music and making it you know they they want it to be pure and right. i respect those guys for that i would say the biggest blessing in their career was like they didn't sign interscope records when interscope wanted to sign them but right. uh you know at the end of the day they took the longer road to success and you know they're aging gracefully like uh they're very much in the context of a grateful dead kind of model you right. know and uh independent of itself operating yeah and a, a, a legion of subculture of right. you know real fans are living that lifestyle the yeah. stupid heads and right. uh yeah it's interesting for me too and, and i mean i'm just blessed to be able to have something that different things that parallel that experience but slightly stupid very heavily does and, yeah um it's interesting parallel you brought up earlier about the, like the changing of the music business and and retail and, and like hard copies and now and, and like there are a lot of bands um that didn't necessarily gracefully transition into that era who are from like the old model you know who are used to the record company advance yeah. and uh, tour support and all and that whole model fell apart with the end of like retail music but stupid has been like a head of the curve like you were saying by creating that model yeah. now that they've really gracefully transitioned into the new business model. yeah i mean we did it out of necessity they kind of had the tail end of the record 
era where they had early fans that were buying CDs and right. there wasn't online, there wasn't Facebook, there wasn't even, there was something called a chat board, you right. know, and a lot of the early online action on Stupid was a chat board where people were talking on there, right? But you were still buying CDs and all that. Um, they've maintained such a like loyal fan base that a lot of those people bought CDs for a long time as we were transitioning into right. digital. But we didn't have a label. And yeah, we had to figure out ahead of the curve how to survival, you know what I mean? How to use all the tools that were there. And some of that started to become technology. And right. as a touring band... Um, building a career that way you're not as reliant upon the radio hit or the label advance or whatever you're you're cultivating like a live uh <clears throat> paradigm and revenue stream that that's really your your lifeline and bread and butter and so that helps you know that mentality helped to be able to i guess you know adapt to right and you know we all grew with the technology too but we're just i think probably yeah one of the first like bands to be having to use that next and some people were uh would what could you say like record companies didn't want to accept the fact that like you can't stop technology this is going right. this direction you know well so you got to get with it and pod and then things totally changed right and uh now it's spotify and you know what i mean so we keep uh think if you keep just putting good music and, and good content out there the word's gonna spread and hopefully people want to come and buy a ticket right. to the show because you can't replace the experience of live music that's why we're all here in new orleans 100%. right at jazz fest i mean we, we jones for that experience it's, yeah. you know keeps us what we do yeah, yeah it keeps us going and and uh so yeah incidentally the only time uh that that uh i got here for jazz fest well or not the only time the only time slightly stupid and fishbone they actually played jazz fest together in 2005 2005 or 7 um so that was and they neither one have been back yet so i'd love yeah. to get those guys back here right on. um they've all jammed together and we've had in yes. 2010 was the year stupid came through and played the republic during say it was during voodoo or yeah i think it was during voodoo but that's when uh, I reached out to Ian and Ivan Neville to come sit in with Stupid right. and try to like cross the lines of this music that I was really digging down here, funk-based music, and try to kind of genre-bend that with some of the, some of the California reggae textures. And uh, that show was pretty epic. There was a sound check rehearsal uh, early and got to listen to those guys kind of work some shit out and feel the grooves. And yeah, they just they, they crushed that one. And that kind of yeah. birthed. I'd known Ian and Ivan for a while before that, just being out here on the streets and going to shows and, you know, connecting and, and try to get them a few times, like, you know, to, to uh, I don't know, a couple of times I told Ian, man, let me come down. Guys, are your age and you guys should make music together. And I was talking about him playing with Stupid and it happened and right. we've become integrated a lot there's been quite a few sessions and ian's toured with stupid and comes down yeah. closer to the sun and sits in with the band and and uh we did bob weir's tri studios together with ian and ivan and yeah. denson and bob weir in 2011 and um that's really my mission that's really what i thrive on you know in terms of what i'm doing is the, the art of the collaboration and trying to like somehow construct something a vehicle that creates like a new sound in a way you know that's yeah. been something that i guess i'm chasing for in a way a new sound but that's rooted in the classic stuff just like you were saying with sublime taking all these elements of what is dope but putting it into something totally brand new like conceptually yeah. it's the same thing you're trying to do 
That's awesome, man. I was going to segue into, uh, you know, your clients in New Orleans. Um, you mentioned you had a history with Ian and Ivan, and now, you know, you've dumped the folks a part of the Silverback yeah. stable for many new years now, right? Yeah, since uh, 2010. I think I'm the long, longest lasting manager they have. <laughs> but, yeah, and I mean, these, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to get down here and start seeing all this music, and <clears throat> I think those guys felt a certain sincerity, you know, from where I was coming from. Mm -hmm. uh, the early shows down here, like, George Porter really, really turned me on to New Orleans. When I started coming Jimmy's. down here and seeing, like, the late night Superfly shows, and yeah. he was out playing the old Howlin' Wolf, and Jimmy's. There, yo, Jimmy's, yeah. yeah. And there was one show, I remember, where it was uh, Mike Clark's Prescription Renewal sure. with uh, Mike Clark and... Uh, uh, headhunters, you know, I mean, Bill and yeah. George was up there, and I mean, it was just one of these things that that was truly mind blowing music for me that I had never heard anything like that. And I started feeling like George was really the heartbeat of the town, you know, and he became somebody that really, really inspired me to get deeper into New Orleans. And uh, I started becoming somewhat friendly with George. and um, I asked him a few times over the years, like one time he had a 2007 House of Blues late night show that Derek Trucks played guitar on, who's a funky meters. And that was one of the most mind blowing late night sets I had ever yeah. seen. And I told him, yo, George, what about that, that, that set with Derek Trucks? Mind you, in 2007, Derek Trucks was still kind of a kid. He had just right. gotten a recording contract with Sony. And I said, George, let's put out that show. I want my label to actually release that one, you know? And I was begging George a few and he's like man we can't really fuck with Derek because he just got you know he's got one of the last good recording contracts in the business and uh, I still would like to hear the 2007 Funky Meters with Derek Trucks tape but uh, I have to have to tap George for that one and see if he's got it in the archive but um, you know that relationship goes back pretty far and it wasn't until a few years ago that I started officially working with George Porter um, Alex Bowen had been managing him in town and Alex wanted to widen his net in the management world and, and uh, so I let him come over to Silverback and I'm well, not let him I welcomed him to come over with George Porter right. and uh, <clears throat> you know it's been a kind of glorious relationship in a way for, for me like that kind of like uh, solidified this whole vision for New Orleans so like the fact that Silverback gets to work with George and Ian and Ivan and Tony Hall and Nick Daniels and uh, a network of people in my favorite city in the world, yeah. really. You know, it's 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 pretty mind-boggling. I reflect on it when I sometimes do these interviews and it's like, you know, it's uh, life is kind of, you can manifest these things and really if you believe in them, you can, can make them happen. Yeah, and will them to happen. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's been satisfying to see George go through a period where he's had some hardships by, you know, losing his wife, Era, oh, and yeah. Art Neville, you know, can't play anymore. His right. best friend's in the hospital. Like, how, uh, so I was like, I told George, I like rather befriend you. It's not like a music business, you know, like thing. Like, I just want to help you, you know? And uh, I think like his last two years, I mean, and I feel a lot of it is also probably the, the spirit of, of his, his wife, looking down yeah. on him too but like look at the things that have happened I mean you yeah. know he's gotten I think more popular than he had been in other years he's gotten accolades to, accolades he got a not that this has anything to do with me he got a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award he got asked to sit in and play with 
dead and company right. and that's a big and I think more Phil people the other night yeah Phil the other night major highlight for me yeah. you know and, and, and to hear uh, Phil over the zig drums which is oh, like a and dream then, totally it was just you organic know? <laughs> you know he wasn't plugged in just a straight up in the ampeg yeah. and yeah him and George dual bass lines I mean oh, that's I had that's chills, what, man. yeah, me I had too. Chills. And that's I also didn't know it was coming. Yeah, well, that blindsided me. when Foundation of Funk did Lock In with when Bobby yeah. and, and Mayer came out and yeah, Dead Drummers, nobody knew, you know, yeah. like I knew because I put it together, but like that yeah. was the whole thing, like you know, to have a surprise like that. And if you listen back to Zig announce that to the audience as it was happening, right. and nobody knew, and then they finally the come war. up. Yeah, you I know. watched the stream. Yeah. yeah, and you could go still check that out. But um, those are the moments, honestly, that I live for, and those are the moments that really keep me motivated to stay in this business because it's not easy, and a lot of people do yeah. feel like or think can get the impression. I mean, it is a lot of fun, man. Like I, I enjoy what I do, but it's it's hard work too, hard. and the payoff, you know, is when you're able to actually have these communication with these legends and then actually make something like that come to fruition that even those guys weren't like you know maybe it'll happen you know what i'm saying but right. when it happens and and it happens and it, the result is like you know yeah yeah I, I live for that too man and it's funny you say that because you know i'm not in i'm not as close to the action as you but i you know have a bit of a ringside seat to how things work or whatever so when yeah. something like that with phil coming out and i'm in the second row happens and i had yeah even i had no yeah. idea that one was under under it wraps was just, well it didn't happen till till that morning too right. you know how it happened is uh but i mean i'd heard like now that i, I i've heard he'd been spotted here or there yeah blah blah, blah and but me, I just had no Well, Krasnow, I heard somebody say, Krasnow said, because he'd been playing with them in family band and all that and hanging out with Graham, Phil's son. And I I heard from someone else that somebody said, oh, Phil wants to sit in. And uh, so I called Kras that morning and say, like, yo, is that true? Because if it is, like, let's make this happen. Right. And Kras had the, you know, number for Graham or whatever and Phil. So he's like, okay, I'll call him if you want it to happen or the guys are cool with it. And we discussed maybe what they would play. Like, did George and Zig want to learn a dead song like that day? Or could? They probably could. But, like, we kind of were like, let you know, to keep make it easy and actually keep it to the meters. So it was Ico and Hey Pocky yeah, Way. Yeah, it was perfect. And, uh, dead yeah. songs that, uh, Neville's songs that... You know that or songs yeah, that the Neville's meters, made Neville's exactly, right. and that uh, and that the dead both played, and so um, that was just a you know uh, that type of experience. And then when you, the music gets made, and those guys yeah. hadn't really played on stage together, maybe once I think George played with Phil at uh in, but you know but he did the things Zig. with Bobby, but not not the meters rhythm right. section. And so I that's because you know how hard Zig hits when he's into it. Yeah, right now. Yeah, like pointed out. Yeah, like, nobody, do, nobody, nobody does does that. It, right, so, but and Phil with the bombs and you yep. know, so Phil just letting loose, like you said, straight into the amp, pure yep. unadulterated bombs, and Zig responding to that. I swear, yeah, gave me chills. Me too, man. It was, It'll so be so one thank of those you ones. for the role you played in navigating and facilitating that. And thanks to George and thanks to Phil. Yeah, and Kraz. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was one of those amazing only in New Orleans moments. Yep, and man, it that's was, why we do this. Phil was he was he was just a gem, man. I I hung out with Bob Weir a few times with Slightly Stupid in Bob's studio, and I've hung out with Weir with Dumpster Funk and Weir with George. I mean, all those guys have all played together, and Bobby right. was always like, he just loves to play, man. So yeah. he he opened like his, his his his. We go to the Sweetwater Mill Valley, and right. yeah, he's played quite and welcomes those guys and comes out himself. But I didn't know like I love Phil growing up. I'd never really 
got to know what his personality was like. And then for me, after getting to meet him at this show and kind of take care of him that night, we ended up, I mean, he was all over town. He rolled from that show, dropping bombs with the meters to and the Foundation Funk to the Maple Leaf. And then I was in the Maison hanging out with, with G-Love, with Garrett, because he was in town with The Word. And we're, we're buddies. We were watching um, Stanton and... Scarrick and uh, Blue Plate special show at the Maison. But Phil walked in there by himself and I walked over to him like, yo, come over here with me and G-Love, we'll get you a drink, come hang with us. And so sure, you know, he recognized me because I'd helped him at the show, like get situated with, with Foundation. And he ended up, uh, we drank tequilas all night and watched the music and put him in an Uber at 5.30 in the morning back wow. to the Ritz-Carlton. I mean, he was just hanging tough. Yeah, I saw some and photos of him around town and this and that. He just seemed so, like, taking it all in and happy and vibrant. Yeah. And, like, that was really cool to see. I mean... I'm sure. 79-year-old liver transplant it's survivors. Double Double Anejo Casamigos on the yeah. rocks. I'm like, yeah, Good Phil. Him, but, yeah, it was great to, great to see him having that much fun, yeah. you know. Tomorrow's not promised. We all know that, unfortunately. And he's out there. He's like, look around. Let me get it how I live it, you know. Yeah. Like, why not? Good yeah. for him, man. That's really amazing. I'm really proud of his son. And his son got up yeah. with Foundation of Funk 2, so, Graham, and he threw down some tasty licks, too. Have a, have a good thing. Yeah. The chemistry thing. Yeah. He's done a lot. Right on, man. Yeah. So, yeah. well... I don't know what's next in store. Unfortunately, I got to go back home for the second weekend to another festival. There's a thing in, in uh, Redondo Beach called Beach Life. And it's the first year of that. And that has uh, Stupid with, with Bob Weir sitting in as a special guest. Bob Weir and the Wolf Bros are on that the same night. And then Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys and Willie Nelson are the other headliners. So That's a sweet one. Pretty iconic, yeah. you know, type bang, of. Bang. Yeah, so well, bad, good problems to have, but yeah. we'll be sad to miss the second weekend of the 50th anniversary of Jazz Fest because. But, you know, you saw the George and Zig, Phil, and, and the fairgrounds, George and Zig with yeah. the Nevilles. And yeah. You do it right, and you'll be back next year and every year after that. For sure, as yeah. long as as long as there's an Earth, there's and as long as there's a New Orleans, we'll be doing this for the rest of our lives. You yeah, know? man. Yeah, yeah. job willing. Well, two things I wanted to, to get through on the way out. I know you got to hustle out of here. Let me see. Yeah, go ahead. First things first. While we're on the uh, topic of you know New Orleans and your clients and stuff, who's your social media guy for Silverback? Who like handles all that stuff? Uh, I'm pretty much the one feeding everything okay. there. Why are you interested? Well, no, I don't want to try to take anyone's job. I'm just saying, like, you know, a lot of cats down here, or even in our scene, they're just, like, not keeping their fans informed on a regular basis, and I've always been really impressed how, you know, I wanted the uh, person to uh, give a shout-out. Thanks, man. You know? Well, that, I'm always, like, under-impressed because I'm like, are we doing a good enough job? Yeah. And I'm doing Definitely so many things. Like, well, George, I gotta give props. George is social media. That's the one thing I told George yeah. when when he came over. I'm like, look, this is the era that we gotta do something here. There's yeah. there's nothing happening really. Like he's doing his own videos and stuff. And George is one of those guys. He's as old as he is. He's very technically technology to me savvy. Like he's interested, and I'm always respect that. But. uh you know, you got to know how to do this kind of shit. Instagram, you can't yeah. just do live videos yourself every day. But uh, Johnny Ray, who right, I have met guy. because he was a DJ on WWOZ. I remember his show, yeah. And that's how we met through that and we became friends. Uh, he got let go when OZ had the changeover. And I just was appreciative of his knowledge of music and that's what you need like i can't sit there necessarily and have to explain the culture or tell somebody 
What's to po- what who George right. Porter is. So, you know, I, I was confident that I found somebody that, like, could apply that knowledge in the yeah. social media aspect. And so I brought him on board to do George's social media specifically, and that's turned out to be a really good yeah. match. So, um, you know, we feed each other information and whatnot, right but he's doing all the posting on that, and we have props to Johnny Ray. Yeah. Cause, uh, he gives me a lot of good info, you know, for my job, and I'm writing stories, writing promos, yeah. like trying to trying to work with these cats. He, if I make an error, I was like, hey, heads up. Give yeah, me no, he's good like that. I can't bury yeah. my head so into social... Out. I didn't know that he was the only guy, so... For George, he yeah. is, and then, like, it's me on Silverback Music, okay. and if you don't have Silverback Music on your Insta, please add us at, at Silverback Music, but, um, you know, I got people at Silverback that will handle the, the tedious posting nature, and will look for hashtag posts and do you know show posts but right. most of the cultural stuff and the lingo and what the voice is, is yeah. coming straight from here you know yeah I feel like uh, some other cats that I love in the industry I won't name could learn a thing or two about how George is presented and how you guys like get him to the people you yeah. know what I mean everyone feels like they know him yeah that was the and idea you know, it's, it's I mean amazing. he's such a nice guy like yeah. you gotta you gotta so shout out Johnny Ray yeah you know? man and Rock. last thing I want to say is I was looking at your roster and I'd be remiss if I didn't just bring up Grouch and Eli. Oh, yeah. Huge fan. And they're legends. Yeah. Yeah, but how'd you get down with those cats? Uh, Well, there's a good... NorCal hip-hop. Yeah, yeah, and I grew up in NorCal, but that was a little... That was, they were living legends of hip-hop right, from right, that legends collective. Crew, right? Yeah. Like a nine. Yep. Yeah. And uh, Murs and Scarab. And, um, a, a, a friend of mine who was a young hip-hop promoter in Colorado uh, actually became a friend because he was bugging me like yo dude I want to work for your company and I want to do this and he was just a, a very motivated young hip-hop fan and he started building uh, something out in Colorado that was popping with all the backpacker hip-hop groups you know and he hit me up and was like hey you know I'd like to bring this these guys these MCs Grouch and Eli to Silverback because I think they got you know, one, they're legends, and two, and like I knew all about them, you know, but they have a business and they're smart. And uh, so he brought them over. His name's Adam Struhl. He works out at, at uh, Cervantes. Well, he was running the booking for Cervantes okay. with Scott Morrill, if you've ever been in Denver yeah, and gone. That's a hub, right? Yeah, yeah, and then AEG man. Live recently picked him up. So he's now a talent buyer for AEG Live. But okay. when he was really trying to be a manager, uh, I gave him a shot with Grouch and Eli to come over, and and they became family. And yeah, I mean, and they're still on the roster. They're still on the roster. They're still kind of doing their Semi-active, thing. Semi-active, right? Yeah, they, I mean, there was a lot of uh, living legends kind of resuscitated, right. you know. Which some of those shows, I mean, man, like I'm they sure. were amazing. Um, I was glad I got to see them because I never really yeah. beforehand saw the collective all together, and then they like broke up. Um, we did a record with Grouch and Eli that that they put out that had a collaboration with Pretty Lights called yeah. All These Lights, yeah, I know. and that's yeah. kind of the entry point for us was like we're gonna work on a bigger scope for them, and so yeah. we made this video with Grouch and Eli and Pretty Lights um, up in the Bay Area, right and that song kind of took off for them off that record a little bit. Yeah. But I mean, like you said, going back way back when, they've always had like a a real like uh, strong small underground following yeah. mad respect yeah you know in the industry and when I moved to NorCal and I was living in Nevada City for five years which is like a sleepy burner town up in ganja country yeah right and they come through separate or once together and places packed in like a whole bunch of NorCal kids knowing the lyrics and oh, stuff yeah. and I was just kind of blown away because I've always kind of dug them but I wasn't really 
down. There, I saw like the impact that those guys. Eli, had. like yeah. I mean, he is one insane MC. Yeah. Like yeah. His, just his, you know, flow and, yeah, his flow and nature and rap. Like he, he's yeah. up there with like some of the best. I yeah. feel. And Grouch has a very, you know, distinctive characteristic right. to his. They play off each other. They do, and their personalities, and and they're just smart. They're really dope guys, man. And uh, right Eli, on. Eli's like he he's sober, so he he had some you know issues back in the day. So he's just very serious about his art. He's wrapped about that. Yeah, he's yeah, very yeah. serious about his art, and he's you know he just those guys. I gotta give them massive props yeah. for just being innovators, and you know that's for me. Like if there's a lot of people, what does it take to like? get you in, like interested in working with somebody i mean innovation and right. you know there's got to be a somewhat yeah and then balance. i mean you for me i like to think that there's the uh possibility that, and that they are iconic you know what i mean right. so um those guys i feel like fit that even if they are more underground you don't know them you should go right. check them out yeah Grouch and Eli underground hip hop yeah. Eli yeah Eli the Grouch yeah that's why I brought it up because I know you got a roll we're gonna wrap it up but I before we bounce I was like man I gotta get to Grouch and Eli yeah. so I wanna say thanks for making the time thanks for always making sure I get to see your artists live we appreciate that very much yeah man well, we appreciate the coverage yeah, and just you being an ambassador for the funk and you thanks, know everything man. else it's yeah, like man. we need more people and if you want to do some social yeah. media, let's 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 yeah. wrap. As long as I'm not stepping on toes, yeah, for sure. We'll, we'll talk off the air, but we're gonna wrap it up from uh, here in the Bywater with uh, John Phillips, Silverback Management. It's been an honor and a privilege to get this download with you today. I learned a lot. I learned, right on. Like, I learned a lot. So, and I know the people will enjoy it, and we'll, I'll let you know when we're gonna go live within cool. a couple weeks. All right, right on, man. Is, Thanks for stopping by. Yeah, dude. I'm sure I'll see you out tonight or for maybe sure. tomorrow before you leave town. But I'm gonna sign off. This is the Upful Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and we'll see you next time. Large up to my man John Phillips, Silverback Music, for that fantastic conversation down at the Jazz Fest in New Orleans just a few short weeks ago. Uh, it was really amazing to get some of the history of Grateful Dead and New Orleans connection with the Neville Brothers, talk a bit about uh, some of his clients like George Porter Jr., and Fishbone, Dumpster Funk, and of course, the beautiful and tragic tale of Sublime and Bradley Noel. It was never like heavy into Sublime's music by any means, uh, but I uh, always had a curious fixation on them because of his story and his untimely death and its proximity to that of Shannon Hoon and then uh, just how that was going on back then quite a bit and continues to to this day, but you know, as a teenager to be confronted by the deaths of these heroes among them later on uh, Lane Staley before any of this we're talking about uh, Kurt Cobain and I could reel off a bunch of dead soldiers but that's not the point the point is that 
we've come a long way, but we really haven't come far at all. And, and we had losses like Bradley and Shannon Hoon way back when. And here we are. And as somebody who's struggled with my own, you know, issues through the years with pharmaceutical opiates, and um, I just always like to have my antenna up and seeing how we can help people, how we can educate people, even when it's telling these uh, really demoralizing tales of people who have gone down along the way. So that was important for me, and I'm glad that John was comfortable discussing it because you know, he's got a long personal and professional relationship with Sublime and the remaining members and the families. And, you know, I was just really touched and, and really appreciate uh, John going there. So with that, I want to transition uh, after another thank you to John Phillips, Silverback Music, to Sam Darkangelo, my next guest of the Cannabis Voter Project, which is a part of headcount.org, nonprofit organization that's uh, sole mission is to get out the vote. And I've often been disenfranchised and disillusioned by the political process, no, never more so than in 2000 with uh, hanging chads, Florida and all that shit. But uh, those demons were resurrected in 2016. And, uh, you know, I wanted to do my part to uh, give people a platform to, you know, reach the masses, even though the masses don't listen to my show. Maybe one day they will. In the meantime, I wanted to use my platform to reach people, and I feel strongly about uh, cannabis, naturally, uh, both sides of the fence. I'm not blindly pro-legalization. Uh, I have some concerns on the side of heritage farmers, legacy farmers, the small farmer, um, the people who built this kingdom here on the West Coast. Um, so yeah, we talked a lot about the political side of cannabis, about cannabis activism, and just about how you can get involved in political action. Sam also happens to be from Louisiana and spent a great deal of time in his youth and young adulthood in New Orleans, so naturally we had to touch on that, touch on Jazz Fest, touch on New Orleans as he knew it, as it is now. He's since moved to Austin, but has also lived in Brooklyn, so we went all over the map. Sam and I did. He's also a journalist, and that's actually how we first got on my radar, was his work with Offbeat, and later Relics, and of course Live for Live Music. I saw him at the Royal Wedding in New Orleans a few months back when Kunjansera tied the knot. So Sam and I have just been angling for a powwow of this sort. He was on Dead & Company tour with Headcount, uh, Participation Row. And alas, he came to the Vibe Junkie Studios in Oakland last week, and I pushed him to the front of the line because this is some important shit. So shout out to uh, Sam Darkangelo and Andy Bernstein of Headcount, and uh, look forward to being uh, a portal to the people for uh, work like this and participation row. So without any further ado, here is Sam Darkangelo, the Cannabis Voter Project on the Up for Life podcast, and I'm your host, Begets. All right, and we are live here actually at uh, the Vibe Junkie Studios in Oakland, California. And I am lucky. Uh, I'm on the Up for Life podcast. It's your host, Begets. And like I said, I'm lucky. I have Sam Darkangelo here. He's a fellow journalist that I've come across in a variety of settings. He's also director of Headcount's Cannabis Voter Project. And uh, his, his 
been a writer for Relics and uh, New Orleans Offbeat and even our Live for Live music as yeah, well. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So you, know, you and I have crossed paths in more ways than one, and I'm stoked to finally sit down with you and have this opportunity. Likewise, man. Thanks for uh, having me over. Yeah, man. So uh, for the folks listening at home, before we get into all that good stuff, uh, you're obviously uh, traveling through. You've been on the road on like a, a sort of vision quest of sorts. <laughs> um, tell the people about this uh, trip, where you started and uh, what you're doing on the road. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I already kind of had a trip planned to go see some friends in Las Vegas, and we were going to actually head out to Disneyland, uh, where I'd never been out in L.A., and then I got word that I also needed to be up here in the Bay Area uh, for the Dead & Company shows that are coming up this weekend at Shoreline. So I figured, well, I've got a week in between these things. I might as well make a little trip out of it. So I drove uh, up the California coast from L.A., uh, did the Highway 1 thing through Santa Barbara, Big Sur, uh, Santa Cruz, Monterey Bay Area, and uh, then ended up here. Did it over three days, and it was really, really great. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I made a similar trip like that and started in Vegas, but, uh, you know, up the Highway 1 and, right. and doing cool shit along the way with kind of, was fish at the time, but same, sure. same, well, same thing, you know, it's just like, all right, <laughs> all now the best we're going to go to these down. shows, right? And, all right, while we're there, we're going to do this, that, and the next. So, um, you had said you started in Vegas, but you're... You're currently living in Austin, right? I'm currently living in Austin. Okay, yeah. well, you're from New Orleans, but you're living from in New Orleans, living in Austin. All right, yes. let's talk Austin first because we're going to talk plenty about. New yeah, Orleans. sure. Um, you're studying there. Yeah, I'm getting my master's uh, at the Lyndon Johnson School of Public Affairs at uh, the University of Texas at Austin. Oh, right so, on. Doing a student thing there. Uh, so that's what brought me to, to Austin, which is a city I've always liked. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Had you been to visit before? You yeah, were... I've been to visit a few times. Uh, few reasons ACL one of them you know and right. uh yeah you know it was good to kind of get a change of pace from New Orleans in a lot of ways as much as I love uh you know New Orleans it's kind of a music town in a different sort of way um I you know I'll never have the love for it that I have for New Orleans I don't think I want to stay there permanently but it's definitely really cool to get to spend uh a little bit of time there for sure has there anything been like super cool that you've done since you've been there or the show you saw or a place you went that was definitively Austin or whatever? I mean, you know, it's cliche, but I did my first South by Southwest okay. uh, this past uh, this past year, I guess two months ago or whatever. And I, I had a blast. You know, I'd heard a lot of mixed reviews about right. South by as an event. Uh, but I, I really enjoyed it. I did a lot of things in a very short period of time. And uh, yeah, no, I, I have nothing bad to say about, about that. It was very like... Uh, it's very Austin in the sense that, like, it's just strange because it's such a, like, cosmopolitan event. It's like Austin becomes New York City for, like, two weeks. You have people right. from all over the world. It's just, like, the place to be. And uh, I definitely got caught up in the zeitgeist more than I thought I, uh, I would. There's nothing wrong with that, man. <laughs> and, you know, you're there, and it's there. Yeah, no, It's I, an institution, hey. and a lot of good comes out of it. Yeah, for sure. I saw uh, the coolest thing I saw, actually, was Henry Winkler. Uh, the actor, the Fonz. Yeah, well, now he's, he's on Barry and he's killing it on that show. I don't know if you're watching that one. No. Just won, he just won an Emmy for it, actually. Uh, but he did an acting masterclass where people lined up and they would do a full scene and then he would critique their acting, like honestly, as an acting coach, which is kind of what he does in the show Barry in character, but this was like in real life and it was, uh, I mean, it was just fascinating. It was giving very honest acting advice to people. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm a huge Fonz fan. I always was when yeah, I was a kid. Like, and. 
He recently, not that recently, a couple years ago, he won a Clones Choice Award on the Jim Rome Show. Okay. <laughs> and he actually picked up the award, called in, and and, and a, it was a hilarious moment. And, and, oh, he was but, hilarious, too. Like, the yeah. whole thing was just funny, because he's just funny, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right on. Yeah. Right on. That was, not music, but I was Still, like, wow. Where I mean, else would I see that shit, you know? Yeah. You know? Right on. Like I say, only in New Orleans, well, only at South by. Yeah, exactly. Right? So uh, you were born and raised in, in, New, in New Orleans? Yeah, I was born in New Orleans, raised outside of New Orleans, uh, Mandeville on the North Shore, okay. uh, and went to school in New Orleans, uh, graduated from uh, New Orleans Center for Creative Arts, NOCA. Okay. Wasn't really much of an artist, but it was a great experience. To, so what to did you there. study there? I studied media arts, which is like filmmaking. Right. Um, kind of decided midway through that I didn't really want to be a filmmaker, but I didn't want to go to normal school either, so I was just going to kind of <laughs> stick that out. Uh, and really just have have a good time uh but what was great was yeah i mean there's a lot of you know great jazz musicians who came out of that program a lot of great actors so it's just cool to be surrounded with like new orleans creative community at such a young age and to have a school that allows that to be nurtured uh the way that it should be in a place like new orleans so i don't know if you're familiar with noca but it's it's pretty incredible yeah Yeah, yeah, uh just this really well-funded uh well-resourced uh creative arts high school um not too well funded though they always need money so yeah, yeah just you know. <laughs> don't want to give off the, the wrong impression but it's great um the resources they have for for young artists in uh in the new orleans area yeah i bet man and, and there's there's still a strong need for more of that not Absolutely. just in new orleans but in schools yeah because like, they're cutting you know the arts budgets and sure in public education across the country and, and even in place like new orleans which you know yeah is is the heartbeat is music and the tourism is because of music and so much of the city and it's the city I'm most familiar with in the U.S. just because of music and going right. there and and experiencing the culture there and um, as somebody who was born and raised there and has had the privilege and opportunity to get out and do some cool shit outside of the the New Orleans like how do you it's a weird question but like how do you see folks like myself who sort of and you, I want you to be frank, not just me, but people in general. There's a lot of like people who claim New Orleans who aren't from New Orleans. People who love right. it, who who um, swear by it, who talk about it like it's their own, and it's not. And and at the same time, you know, I feel like I need to do my part to spread right. the gospel, to sort of you know bring it to folks that might otherwise not know or should know, etc. And yeah. you know, sometimes I feel funny sitting across from a. a actual local you know we're looking at a jazz fest poster on my wall we're talking about new orleans and i'm not an authority but in some conversations i might be seen as one so right. i like to ask folks who are actually from there you know to talk a little bit about their reality and you're talking about noca and that's something that folks right. should know about you know yeah i mean you know i'm certainly not an authority on new orleans either i mean i didn't even spend my childhood you know near the city but not even living in it exactly and uh you know i know when i is, is an authority, I think. Right. You on know anything, I mean, you can only really speak for yourself. I think at the basis level, we need people like yours, tourism dollars. So by all means, Absolutely. fall in love with the city of New Orleans and go um, and spend your money there That's for exactly damn sure. <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the whole, there, there are a lot of sort of, as New Orleans has become sort of a cool city in the same way that I guess the Bay is not nearly on this level, but there's been some really hard economic realities that the city's been dealing with in terms of things like housing. You've got stuff like Airbnb that's taken over right. uh, the market. So kind of, I guess, be conscious of how you travel to a place like New Orleans. Um, there's certain neighborhoods that have become you know, more or less 
unlivable for a lot of people because of the proliferation of short-term rentals, right. uh, things like that, um, that have come with New Orleans being like a cool uh, town. Yeah. You start to get a lot more people who are, I guess, uh, transient in the way that they sort of view the community. Like, I, uh, you know, when I lived in Brooklyn, for instance, most people I met were not from Brooklyn. And there were obviously like lots of people from Brooklyn in Brooklyn. But in the circles that I traveled in, the majority of people were not from Brooklyn. You can almost ask pretty much anybody, you know, where are you from as a conversation starter because you were fairly certain it wouldn't be Brooklyn. Right. And, you know, as someone who's been that in another city, I, you know, don't really have the best leg to stand on here. But it is interesting to see that that's become a thing in New Orleans. These people who move here for a couple of years because it's a cool, hip town and then move on and never really have this interest in being a part of the community Um not because they like oppose it or anything, but because it's just, you know, they're not viewing it as a home necessarily. Right. So Right on. Um you feel like that you could draw a parallel line to Jazz Fest with that as sort of how it's evolved and maybe I don't know, it's still something that's tremendous and awesome, but maybe has lost or evolved in a way that's less right. authentic to what is New Orleans. Uh, you hear that from a lot of local solicitors. Like, you got to come to French Quarter Fest. You're like, you do you well. Know. French Quarter Fest, yeah. I mean, it's you know, you're not going to get the big name acts. Also, French Quarter Fest suffers from crowd issues as well. Uh, you know, the price of being too popular and too and good too of an free. event. You know, and, and free, yeah. And I know at least Bayou Boogaloo was another great right. event that started charging. I believe this year uh, right. a small ticket price. They had a weather catastrophe though. That, no, it, the previous year I was there for right. that. I was living by the bayou, so right I, yeah, that was. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I just kind of would like to hear like. No, I hear you. it's a complicated uh, thing. I mean, jazz fest in particular. Like, I know a lot of people would say that their local musicians aren't getting as many gigs as That's they a fact. as they Billy maybe Adams were. I was just talking about last week. You know, a few show. a few years ago, not even a few years ago, but many years ago. You know, yeah. um, or even a few. Yeah, and it's it's uh. It's, a it, it's interesting. Uh, the ticket prices have gotten really high yes. <laughs> for single day yeah. uh, passes. You know, your the weekend, whatever. Uh, that's that's yeah, eighty bucks. Now. You know, yeah. I mean, I've only been. You know, I'm 29. I've been going to jazz fests since I was as like on my own, maybe since I was 15 or 16. So 13, 14, 15 years. I've seen the ticket prices just absolutely sure, cool. skyrocket. Definitely at a much faster pace than inflation or any kind of thing like that. So. Right. But that could be um, the same could be said for concert industry in general. Well, I mean, absolutely. We're talking about Dead & exactly. Company this weekend. Totally. Sure, Shoreline, Dead & Company, face values, you know, 100 bucks, right. give or take, yeah. just to get in the door. Yeah, that's true. No, you're right. You're right about the concert industry. I mean, you know, it's the demand thing. The Stones were pulling, what was the tickets they were selling those for? I don't even yeah, remember. Yeah, oh, it was, it was like 185. Yeah. Yeah. It was a limited number. So, right. you know. It's a hard reality and stuff. And I don't know. I still think that Jazz Fest has a ton of merit, even at an eighty dollars face value ticket. And uh, oh, I mean, it's a great event. It's a yeah. world class event. There's a reason people a come bang all over the buck. world for yeah. Jazz Fest. Uh, but I do think it's interesting when you have the people who come. You know, they come for Jazz Fest every year. Maybe come another time of the year. See yeah. if you really if you really like New Orleans. Like this isn't really what it what is. It this is, is like right? a kind of version of it. It's not not what it is, but like you know, you can come another another time and get a, a totally different experience yeah um you know. agreed well i appreciate the local perspective or you know growing up there and being around there and so forth but uh you're here because uh you're on the road to do this dead and company thing at shoreline for the headcounts cannabis voter project yes. and i know you've been uh you've had your hand in a lot of things you've been working with lettuce and you'll be doing that at, at rage rocks and stuff and 
there's a lot we can talk about with cannabis law and voting, and sure. I'm sure we'll take it wherever you want. I mean, I've had my own uh, experiences, positive yeah. and uh, tragic, uh, on both sides of that coin. Um, but how does that work for somebody like you? Um, you table the event. Um, you do have kind of any sort of outreach workshops. What is the responsibilities of the the director of the yeah, cannabis you know, law? kind of making that everything the shows right well with these shows you know we're doing these these four shows in the california run dead and company at shoreline and then in la and then we're also going to be at the Folsom field shows in boulder uh for two nights as well uh headcount does this thing called participation row right uh, on the dead and company tour and then at a number of festivals it's essentially a non-profit village kind of thing uh they'll be registering people to vote with headcount proper and other organizations will be set up as well uh to educate people or get them signed up for for other things uh and cannabis voter project will be one of the booths uh for the first time in a participation row at these uh dead company shows so we're kind of seeing you know kind of feeling it out seeing what works best what's the best way to come to these shows and mobilize people to get them to get in touch with their legislators to get them registered to vote uh to get them making noise about cannabis policy and getting educated about cannabis policy and uh do you feel like the the rock concert medium is an effective way to get the vote out in in terms of do you see palpable you know upswing right. turnout interest whatever uh when you do these sort of events uh yeah well you know what's interesting i mean headcount has had their finger on this pulse for like a really long time i remember when they came out yeah and yeah. so you know we definitely found that concerts are a great place to register people uh, to vote using artists and their social media presence is a great way to get people not just registering to vote, but excited about actually going to vote, you know? Um, and you can definitely tell a lot of the time um, when there's an election year, people are a lot more interested. People are, you know, they want to register to vote. And what was interesting was this last midterm election, you saw almost, you know, basically presidential election levels of interest uh, right. in registering to vote and participating in the political process, which is usually not the case in midterms, you know, they're generally more active than an off year, but they're not presidential year level. And so that was interesting uh, to see, especially at some of the younger uh, concerts. You see a lot of people who are like really interested in being able to vote for the first time. Uh, there's a lot of interest in that right now. As far as the Cannabis Voter Project goes, uh, people are kind of always interested in that. Cannabis right. is this, you know, one of the reasons why Headcount decided to focus on cannabis as a get out the vote issue is because it's one of the only issues that has pe the power to get people who otherwise might not vote at all out to the polls. There's a lot of people um, who are apathetic about politics. When you're doing a voter registration drive, that's one of the biggest problems you run into is people who just know they can register to vote. They have the resources available to them to do it, but they choose not to. They don't really care right. about participating in the political process. Some of these people care about cannabis. They care about cannabis policy. Maybe they've grown cynical about it because of the sort of inertia surrounding the issue for so long. But if you can convince these people that there's a way that they can see their cannabis interests advanced through voting, then you're more likely to get them to actually to do that than if you were to just say, hey, you know, register to vote. Right. So. Well, that's a two-pronged uh, topic. So I want to take them both directions. So sure. I want to go participating in the political process first. Um, I don't have, and I'm not, I'm speaking for myself here. I don't have a ton of faith in the whole thing anymore. And it's not just because of our current sitting president in general. Um, if it can be manipulated and, and, you know, 
from voting districts redrawn to fucking hanging chads to now we've got computers and Russia and fucking Mark Zuckerberg somehow affecting the election. Like I, I myself, and I'm a well-read, educated cat who voted in several elections, um, I've lost a bit of faith in it. And you're sitting across from me, somebody, we have a lot of common interests, music, journalism, cannabis. Um, what do you say to a person like me? Why should I reinvest myself in this after I feel betrayed, lied to, mis misguided? I mean, if you don't think that voting is, you know, getting you what you want out of politics, and maybe you have plenty of reason to believe that, there are people who are getting what they want out of politics, and, and they're voting, you know? Right. And, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, what I would, that's what I would tell somebody. There's no, there's no reason not to do it, that's for damn sure. You know, the, well, there was a point in time where not voting was a vote, but then, now that's become cutting off your nose to spite your face. It's might you might as well hand the other side the vote, but in a situation where you're not stoked on, you know, I don't want to go down that road. I'm just saying yeah. I feel sure. uh, I'm just I feel apathetic, and and I, I'm, right. of course I'm going to continue to vote, but. I don't have a lot of faith in the whole fucking thing, dude. Well, and I think one of the reasons why cannabis is a great issue to focus on is because there's few issues where you can see clearly how that isn't the case. Why is marijuana legal in Colorado? Because people voted for it. Right. There was a concerted effort to get something on the ballot. It got on the ballot, and the people voted for it. What you're seeing now, the Illinois legislature, right? Today. Just today. You saw that. The Senate passed a legalization bill. Right. It's going to go to the House. They're probably going to look at it in the next few days. Why did that happen? Because there was an election, there was a governor who right. ran on a pro-cannabis campaign. You know, there were legislators who said that they would write this bill and that they would vote these ways on it, and so they did. And people knew that when they went out to the polls. It's not the only thing people vote on, but these things happen because elections happen, right. elections matter. You know, even in the places where it's not looking like it's gonna happen, where governors campaigned on legalization, places like New York and Connecticut, where not at least, you know, in the immediate future, right. Um, the conversation is happening there to a much greater degree because of an election, right. you know? So it's not perfect, but we're here in California, 2016, this yeah, state Yeah, but that voted. was not necessarily a great thing. There's a, there's a dark side to that whole thing that I'm sure you know about in terms of small farmers being marginalized, and, and there's just a lot... I don't even want to go down that rabbit hole because we sure. lose a lot of people that are listening that aren't familiar with the nuances right. sure. of the law. But... But no, we do need to at least address that it's not a black and white issue. Like, it should cannabis be legal or not. If I could do it again, I would not have voted along with the, with the legalization, the Prop 64, I guess it was, that uh, legalized uh, adult use here in 2016. Right. Uh, just because I, I lived on ganja farms and worked for small farmers, and I've seen the trickle-down economics and how it's affected legacy farmers. And I'm not going to raise my voice at you. I'm just saying, like, it's something I'm passionate about, and I think it's important to understand that these are nuanced issues, and it's not like, should weed be legal or not? Of course it should be. I mean, I'm talking to someone who did time for that shit. But um, I don't want to just rush to kick the door down because we're losing some fo important folks along the way. Well, there's that question, and that's, that's a good thing to bring up there because, you know, in a lot of places it's not just about yes-no legalization, it's about how do we legalize, you know? And again, there are organizations that are making their voice heard, that are that have concerns that you probably have and who are trying to, sh to craft 
shape the legalization discussions in their states, in their areas around those issues and making sure that those things get addressed. And But that's only happening because these people have chosen to participate in the political process, because they've gone and they've done the organizing work um, to get those issues raised. You know, And if they weren't doing that, nobody would be talking about those things. So if you see legalization as something that's inevitable, you know, maybe you want to make your voice heard about the how of right. legalization and not just the if. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have a dear friend who's a major part of that grassroots movement, and, and she's programmed me well to be attuned to those type of things. But I just felt like I needed to kind of say that on the record, just like I wanted to hear from you why it's important uh, for somebody who's disaffected or disenfranchised to re-engage. And I right. think you addressed that pretty succinctly and well. Yeah. And, you know, Cannabis Voter Project, we don't take a position. We take the position that people should be informed about right. cannabis policy. People should know where their elected officials stand. They should know what's happening in their state so that they can make their own informed decisions about what they believe. But So if you don't take uh, a side, if you will, um, what are some sort of, uh, what would be some news organizations or like sites or resources for people who wanted to inform themselves about cannabis, you know, yeah, across I mean, the board? Because, you know, in the a, a fake great, news era, where do we go for that unbiased account? So honestly, a great website, um, one, I read their newsletter every day, uh, Marijuana Moment, is a guy named Tom Angel uh, runs it. He's a great marijuana journalist, cannabis journalist. Um, he's kind of on top of everything. I mean, you'll probably get half the stories there before you'll find them in some you know, major media outlet. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you want to keep up to date on like the what's going on, just the mechanics, this bill's here, this thing was said by this person in power, uh, Marijuana Moment is a great great place awesome. great resources and you know you've got your high times and your cannabis nows and other you know play, people that have been writing about about uh, marijuana for a long time and right. great resources as well marijuana moment though i think uh if i had to plug one okay <laughs> there's a great article in the new york times uh, about a week ago about a farmer from humboldt county did you get a chance to read that no I haven't i'm gonna send it to you um it's passionate. It's the best of both worlds. It's incredible long-form yeah. journalism. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the New York Times going to give you yeah, that kind but, of But, I mean, it's a like, dude that I could have worked for, and it's right. a friend of friends, whatever. Um, it's just a really, you know, what do they say, like warts and all uh, detailed account of from the, the hills to legalization and, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly of it. And I just think it's really well-written. So yeah, I'm gonna yeah. make sure you, I get that, too. No, I'd, like, I'd like to, definitely like to read that. So you've been working with, you know, you got uh, Headcount works with like lots of bands, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you find that like I know Lettuce has been great, and now you, there's Lettuce no has been fantastic, yeah. And they're I'm not surprised. I mean, they, yeah, they're great been, dudes, and they they've love been weed. great, yeah. Um, and they care about you. They're conscious, you know, and, and I, that really speaks to me. Not just them, but anytime an artist uh, is willing to lend their voice to a cause. I remember when the Rising Appalachia was very vocal about Standing Rock, you know, and that spoke to me, you know, and I ended up doing an interview with them over it and really uh, it was like a portal for a lot of people to find out some shit, and that's really why we do this. Um, what have been some of the uh, the artists along the way that have, uh, you know, jumped on board besides Lettuce or Dead & Company uh, with what you're doing? With yeah, I mean, we've, we've gotten endorsements from uh, via social media from, you know, Revolution and 311, uh, Bands like that. We've got Lucas Nelson did a thing. Margot Price uh, took a photo for us. Uh, right now, we're not really trying to branch super hard into the artist thing, the sort of standard headcount model of setting up at shows. Uh, we're being pretty judicious about how we, we do that right now. Uh, we're kind of actually looking for other ways to, to, to make a splash, but there's always you know going to be that component as right. well. I'd like to see us expand 
uh, into other artists. But uh, right now, no, we haven't been really doing much to like gather up endorsements or team up. Well, there, was, there was a lot of that. I remember back around like presidential elections and stuff, going back to like uh, 2004 when they first started. Sure. Uh, Andy and and that whole thing sort of happened in response to the post 9/11 stuff. And and I always have seen like during the time of the presidential election is when everything ramps up and headcount aligned with that. So I guess we can probably expect, you know, just a a really a, a strong wave of this type of activism. Uh, from headcount as we get closer to, you know, 2020. Yeah, that's definitely the hope. I mean, we're really laying the groundwork for what we hope will be a really strong push going into the 2020 elections to increase the visibility of, you know, cannabis as an issue to get people really understanding that uh, there's kind of a juncture right now in terms of cannabis policy. And if people want to see things steer the way that they want to see them steered, then they need to make their voice heard, you know, now, and especially going into 2020. As somebody who grew up uh, in in Louisiana and, and not even just in New Orleans, but out, you know, I guess would, would Mandeville have been rural-ish? No, not really. No. More suburban. Suburban, yeah. That's okay. Probably um, but still in the heart of that region. Sure. And uh, now you're in Texas and you might be in the in the sort of liberal outpost yeah. of Texas, but you're in Texas. So what is the, te- when you're taking the temperature of the South, the Alabamas, the Mississippis, the Tennessees, right. Louisianas, and the, the Texas isn't, uh, and they're seeing Colorado getting rich and becoming this bustling metropolis, Denver, not just in music, but in so much. And it really, you can draw a direct parallel to, yeah. to legalization and what has happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's the red voting, conservative, you know, I don't want to generalize, but you and I both know that's the voting block south in the Mason-Dixon line most of the time. What's the temperature on wheat? Like, what's the temperature on cannabis? You see it like a domino effect, or you got work to do down there? I mean, I think you'd see a domino effect if something were to happen. I think that's been pretty clear on the regional level. Uh, you know, you saw Colorado, and then now what? Colorado, Nevada, California, Oregon, Washington, contiguous region right. uh, there in the Northeast. You've had a lot of movement uh, Vermont, since Maine, Vermont, Mass. Maine, Massachusetts, and now you're kind of seeing it come further south right. uh, from there. Why is Illinois making big moves right now? Well, it probably has a little bit to do with the fact that Michigan, you know, voted to legalize uh, just this past November. So, Strictly economics. Uh, economics, but also kind of, there's sort of this regional mindset. Like, it's easy for a legislator in Mississippi to say, oh, you know, we don't care what they're doing over in California. But if Alabama and Louisiana have both done something, well, Mississippi, uh, it's not so abstract anymore uh, to the people there. So I think that's part of the reason why you see domino effects. It kind of changes the conception of what's possible in a certain political climate, too. Right. You know, uh, I mean, one of the latest polls that came out had Republicans, you know, 51% of Republicans supporting cannabis uh, legalization. I, I mean, John Boehner is like... Uh, uh, John Boehner, well, that's an interesting thing, too, because John Boehner and his people he's with have put their support pretty emphatically behind the States Act, um, which is a federal bill that would, you know, make it official that states can do whatever they, they want to with regards to cannabis policy. So, so there right no, now, uh, unilateral federal rule. So, no, it would still be Schedule 1. They wouldn't change the scheduling of cannabis at all. But it would say, you know, right now, uh, cannabis is illegal at the federal level, and that federal supremacy trickles down to the state level. Technically, the states are in violation of federal law by having, you know, these, these legal right. cannabis programs. Um, it hasn't really been enforced by any Justice Department since late in the, the second half of the Obama administration. But if the Justice Department wanted to, it would have the legal authority to crack down 
on cannabis, legal cannabis that was happening at the state level. So the States Act would just remove that possibility. Mm -hmm. And there are certain, you know, elements, there's, there's states that legislators, industry people who are very concerned with that. You know, the idea that the feds could do something if they wanted to keeps things from, you know, moving uh, the way that certain people want to. So once that barrier is eventually lifted, uh, you're probably going to see more movement in states that are more conservative. They won't have that argument anymore. You know, a lot of people, their go-to thing is, oh, it's still illegal at the federal level, so we're not even going to talk about it. Right. Now, the States Act wouldn't legalize it at the federal level, but there are bills right now that would totally end the federal prohibition of cannabis, completely deschedule uh, cannabis at the federal level. Bills like uh, the Marijuana Justice Act, uh, I believe it's Cory Booker's bill, is, is one that does that. And there are others as well. But the one that is getting the most traction, I guess you would say, is, is the States Act, which isn't actually like ending prohibition. It's, uh, right. you know, allowing the states to do what they want. So that distinction, I think, is uh, is an important one. It definitely is, man. Thanks for breaking that down. I just found there's like an incredible hypocrisy and, and comedy in John Boehner's reemergence as a, a, you know, basically a cannabis lobbyist of some kind. But, you know... That's the world we live in, you know? Yeah, and the whole states' rights approach definitely, um, you know, plays into the kind of Republican Federalist ideology, right. the sort of states' rights uh, sort of thing. Uh, it, it doesn't, you know, go around that. So you could conceivably be opposed to legalizing marijuana but still be okay with the States Act right uh, because it's just allowing power to be devolved from, you know, the feds to the states or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I think you're going to see a lot more movement uh, in, in the South when something happens at the federal level is I guess what I'm, okay. what I'm trying to say. Right on. Uh, but I don't think you're that far out. You know, I think a lot of it's a generational thing. The younger you go... You got Florida getting the medical, ladder. so they're... Florida's getting medical, and hey, Florida might, you know... Florida has ballot initiatives. That's another thing. So what you're seeing with the states that have legalized, it's this kind of sort of checkerboard of left-leaning states, generally speaking, that allow ballot initiatives are the ones that have legalized. With the exception of Alaska... Most of the states that have legalized have generally been left-leaning. Uh, and because they allow ballot initiatives, it allows it to go through the process of people voting on it. The people are usually ahead of the politicians on a lot of issues. So once you start putting a bill into this, to a state legislature, everyone's got their interest. There's all kind of negotiating that needs to happen. The whole process becomes a lot more complicated. So you've got a state like, say, Connecticut, Rhode Island, that might generally be considered as lefty as you know a Massachusetts or a California, but which haven't had legalization really come to fruition yet because there's a whole legislative game that needs to be played before that can happen. It's not like a group gets the petition out, gets the signatures, puts the ballot on, on the, you know, puts the initiative on the ballot and then gets an up-down vote from the people. That's more likely to, to happen quickly as history has shown, <laughs> recent right. history has shown, than the whole legislative thing. That's why Illinois is such a big deal right now. Because that was a legislative thing. That was a legislative thing. The only state that is legalized through the legislature so far is Vermont. And they didn't legalize sales. That's where I went to school. Right. Okay, oh, cool. Yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, heady Vermont. place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, you know, they, they haven't legalized sales. And that's kind of a big right. uh, distinction. There's no actual, like, Dispensary. dispensaries in Vermont. There's no industry. Uh, legislature the, will probably like change that soon. Caregiver mode? You can grow your own. Okay. Um, it's decriminalized. You're not going to go to jail for it. Right. Uh, I'm sure there's plenty more nuances than I actually, you know. Right. Totally it's understand. That the, so, uh, so the states act would basically leave it to the Vermonts and the, and yes. the states to the, set up their own way of doing things. Right. It could be total prohibition to dispensaries and all points between. Yeah, pretty much. Interesting. Uh, yeah, basically, more or less says. 
you know, states can set their own policy, but for federal purposes, it would still be, uh, you know, Schedule One illegal. Right. right. So, uh, it had, you know, yeah. My, my old situation was and not that it wouldn't have mattered, but it was before 2016. So it's a moot point, but it's it's having this conversation and talking about this and just thinking about not just myself, but anybody who's given any of themselves to fucking this whole thing. Um, you know, I knew what I was doing and I knew that it wasn't legal and I had to own that. But at the end of the day, it's just crazy to see this entire industry, not even a cottage industry, an industry explode around me. And I'm lucky that I'm, you know, able to still partake and be a part of it, be write about it, talk about it on my show, right. enjoy a spliff after we're done here, all that. But part of me just still a little angry, you know, right. and, and not just for myself, but for everybody who had to fucking, you know, and I'm not trying to talk tough i'm just saying like it's crazy it dawned on me while we're having this conversation the pendulum and just like how far we've come and, and the carnage along the way and you know on that note if somebody is listening to this you know and they want to be down if they're inspired whether by your story or our conversation how do they get down with what you're doing how do they bring the cannabis voter project to like whatever university or city or town or wherever they are how do they get after it yeah, I mean, we'll you know get in touch with us. <laughs> you right. can shoot us an email for sure. We're happy to talk to you. Um, What's you can, the email? Uh, well, my email is, is well. Let's go with uh, I believe it's info at cannabisvoter cannabisvoter at headcount dot org. Okay. Shoot an email there. I'll put it in the yeah the that comes to capsule. me. And uh, yeah, definitely do that. We also you know we have a little text in system. If you text voter canna to four zero six four nine, that's canna with two ends two words, Voter Canna. It signs you up to the Cannabis Voter Project sort of text and email list. We send statewide updates. You know, your you know, legislature passes something through the House that's going on to the Senate. Well, we'll let you know and we'll tell you, here's how you reach out to your senator, your state senator, and you can tell them, you know, I, your constituent, am a cannabis voter and I support this bill or that bill, uh, whatever it is. Uh, so that's a great way for, you know, to get sort of our, our alerts and when immediate things are happening in your area. There's also, you know, Look up who's doing what in your area. You know, a lot of these organizations that put things on the ballot, they were local groups, got together and did the petition drives and so on and so forth. So, you know, if, if you, there's probably a group in your state that's trying to do something, you know, you get different levels of seriousness with these groups. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, people on the ground is how it, it often happens. So, yeah. you know, definitely be on the lookout. Just literally Google, like, you know, cannabis this or that in my you know arizona whatever state you're in you know right. you'll find probably a couple facebook groups you know do your due diligence as to who you actually want to reach out to but there's uh you know there's stuff going on pretty much everywhere this this issue is moving very rapidly all right well we see that and you know we oh see- also of course go to headcount.org and check out our volunteer page you can yeah. sign up to to volunteer at headcount might not be a cvp thing uh, but Headcount's a great way to go and see some really awesome music yeah. and, you know, contribute Participation to... Participation row, all that. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Get involved with, the you know, the politics in your area by registering people to vote at shows. You're liable to meet a lot of people who are pretty cool. Yeah, right and, on. Well, we appreciate what you're doing, and I'm going to do my part to get the word out. Yeah, and, uh, thank you so much, man. I appreciate yeah, you having I'm me on you came over, and hopefully we'll cross paths sometime this weekend if I can make it out to the, the Dead & Company shows. I'd like to. I have to work, but... Amen. Stranger things have happened. Come on by Participation Row. We'll be out there. Uh, 
If anybody listening is in, yeah. uh, you know, the Denver, Boulder area, come on out to the Folsom Field Participation Row. We'll yeah, be there. What's the date on those shows? Do you know what month I want to say it's July 7th and 8th. Could be All 6th right. and yeah, 7th. Yeah, this will come out before then. It's July 4th weekend, so. Okay, right on. That's High Sierra, or maybe I make the trip. Yeah, right. But yeah, there's always something. You know what I mean? Sure. Cool, man. Well, we appreciate you. The Sam Dark Angelo. Um, I want to take one quick moment. You're staying in Berkeley, right? I'm staying in Oakland. Oh, you're staying in Oakland. Okay. I was going to say hit the Berkeley Patients Group. That's my preferred, oh, okay. That's my preferred dispensary here. The, this super mellow, the, the opposite of the rest of the industry. Or, is super humble shit. We'll be going out to the Canacraft uh, place yeah, tomorrow. Yeah, I so. mean, obviously. Big up, Jen. You know, we love yeah, Jen. Yeah, I'll, I'll say what's up to Jen for you. Yeah, right on. Well, we'll be signing off here with Sam D'Archangelo of uh, headcount.org and the Cannabis Voter Project. Uh, this is B. Getz, the Up for Life podcast, and we'll see you next say thank you to Sam D'Archangelo for coming through the Vibe Junkie studio for a proper powwow about pot politics, New Orleans, headcount, so much more. Thanks, Sam. Let's do it again sometime and hit the journalism stuff. I'm a big fan of uh, what you do. So thank you to Sam D'Archangelo and, of course, a large up and deep bow to John Phillips from Silverback Music. Well, I had a different segment recorded for the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week, but just moments ago we were hit with the devastating news of the loss of the New Orleans icon, Dr. John, also known as Mac Rebinac, the Night Tripper. And uh, even though we've been discussing New Orleans and profiling New Orleans and Jazz Fest on this podcast quite a bit of late and I have written on the city many times. I am neither the authority nor is it the time for me or really anyone other than a local cat to pontificate or eulogize Dr. John. But I couldn't just go ahead and play another song um, because I just couldn't. So I'm going to stop talking and I'm just going to play a classic live rendition of Greek Gree uh, from 1970. Dutch Picnic, Fe- uh, Picnic Dutch Festival in Velsen, 1970. For the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week because, I mean, who's got more vibe than Dr. John? So... Deep condolences to all his family and friends and collaborators, band, past, present, and uh, of course, the great city of New Orleans and all of Dr. John's voluminous fans from sea to shining sea. So rest in power, Dr. John. Uh, Please enjoy this fantastic jam from 1970. That's the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week, and we'll wrap up episode 18 of the Upful Life podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, 
and a deep, deep bow to Dr. John.
when you can't control me, girl. Try some of my control and have some of my bad. Get together, bro. Yeah.